Hello and welcome back to the MDS podcast, the podcast channel of the International Parkinson and Movement Disorder Society. Today, we keep focusing on the coronavirus pandemic and we are going to interview Professor Roy Alcalay, who is an associate professor of neurology and a member of the Movement Disorder Division at the Columbia University in New York in the United States. And he is also a member of the Scientific Issues Committee at the Movement Disorder Society. We are going to discuss with him how and how much the medical practice in movement disorders has changed as a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic and what we should expect to happen in the close future. Hello, Roy, and thank you for being with us. It's really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to talk to you. So, unfortunately, New York has been hit hard by the COVID-19, and I'm sure this affected your practice and the way you are working. Can you just describe what has happened there and what measures have been taken in these last terrible weeks? So, unfortunately, New York was hit very hard with the COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, fortunately, now I think we are past the peak and we are transitioning from the acute state to the chronic state where we are beginning to realize that um, in addition to the devastation of the acute phase where so many people have lost their lives, this is going to be an ongoing condition where social distancing is required and there's not going to be a return to a norm. There would be a return to a new norm, which is going to be a little bit different. Let me tell you a little bit of what happened in early March in New York, even before we stopped clinic visits, was that their ethics committee issued a stop st uh, request for clinical research. Essentially, the Ethics Committee at Columbia University decided that coming to Columbia may be too much to ask people if they're just participating in observational studies and not in clinical trials where they can actually benefit from the intervention. And they asked us to stop bringing in people for observational studies and to see whether people who participate in clinical trials can modify the protocol to something that would require less interpersonal interaction. This initially took us by surprise, but in retrospect, they were absolutely right, and they were the first to deliver the change that we all witnessed. Within a week, when we realized how hard the situation is in New York, we basically stopped all clinical visits in the Movement Disorders Division, except for emergencies. And to cut a long story short, by now, All our visits are done by televisits, and we are hoping to open up for cases where there's no choice and a personal interaction is required. So the two fields in movement disorders that were clearly the fields where in-person interaction is required is for patients who need Botox injections and for people who need a deep brain stimulation adjustment in a way that cannot be done by telemedicine. So what happened really was that over a course of a couple of weeks, we had to change a practice completely from in-person 100% to telemedicine 100%. Uh, the major advantage that we got is that the legislator has been very helpful and all restrictions about seeing patients uh, from out of states have been lifted. And another restriction that has been lifted is that if before we were allowed to use only specific modes of telemedicine like uh, Zoom, or our own system, which is EPIC. Now they told us whatever means you have to communicate with your patients is okay, as long as you communicate with your patients and keep them at home. 
So the uh, leaders understood that the most important thing is to provide care to patients, even in the price that the privacy may not be as strictly adhered to the way it was prior to COVID. So we're now allowed to use WhatsApp or FaceTime or Skype or Zoom or Doximity, whatever software we have for telemedicine. The plan coming back when things are a little bit better is to schedule a telemedicine visit first and to see whether our patient's need can be answered by telemedicine visit. If the doctor and the patient decide that they can't, that would lead to an in-person visit, uh, for example, for Botox or DBS. Well, you are describing what has been the situation for many colleagues around the globe. There has been a very profound change in the way we practice medicine. Was it something completely new to you or you had already some experience with telemedicine before the crisis? Before the crisis, I did not do telemedicine. I evaluated uh, videos of the Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale for clinical trials, but it was videos that were videotaped by clinicians that I needed to evaluate, so there was not a real interaction with patients. And uh, also, um, it was a sobering difference to see that when someone is recording a Unified Parkinson's Disease Rating Scale, it is completely different than when you're asking an elderly person at home to use their iPhone to show you the exam, how much more difficult it is to get them to engage in a way that you can actually learn about the motor findings. Yeah, that was actually my next question. So our specialty is very much based on physical exam, which includes the observation, but also often we have to touch the patients. How difficult is it to evaluate a neurological patient using a webcam or a smartphone? So it's very difficult. I would just say that I think that as Parkinson's doctors and uh, movement disorder specialists, we provide a lot of counseling. And I think we need to do a lot of guidance and counseling and handholding for people who are affected by a serious disease, by serious conditions. So I was pleasantly surprised that the interpersonal interaction by the videos is better than I expected it to be. In fact, because when you have a video visit, you're so focused on the video and the person talking to you, it's not like a clinic visit where people come in and out of the room when the nurse checks the blood pressure and you go get a glass of water. It's actually more intense in many ways. And I think that the telemedicine has been extremely successful in holding hands and working with our patients in very tough times. Some of them, I'll take I'll talk about it later, are affected by COVID, and some of them are affected just by the social distancing and recommendations we always give to hang out outside, to do exercise. We had to change those recommendations and see how people can socially distance themselves because a lot of our patients belong to at-risk populations for COVID, being elderly and often men. The exam is much more limited than an in-person exam. And I think this is affects a lot in new patients. To diagnose a patient with a serious condition like Parkinson's by televisit is extremely challenging. And you may or may not be able to do the exam. Of course, for a diagnosis of Parkinson's, we need to identify rigidity, which we cannot test for. So if there's tremor, you can maybe make a diagnosis based on tremor and bradykinesia. But if people are just rigid and bradykinetic, it's very hard to make a diagnosis. For our follow-ups patients where you already know them, 
and you need to manage, manage medications, I think the televisits and the visual exam is uh, significantly better because you know what to look for. And uh, many times we change the regimen based on report rather than based on fully the neurological exam. So telemedicine, I think, quite good for follow-ups, more challenging for new. I've had this exact same conversation with many colleagues here, and I think that we would all agree with you that to do a telehealth assessment to a patient that you have never seen or examined in person before can be very, very challenging. But on the other side, the follow-up visits of a patient that you know already is certainly feasible. And actually, another thing that I've been discussing with some colleagues lately, and I'll be happy to have your opinion about this, is that sometimes seeing patients in their own home, in their own environment, can be useful and even better in some aspects than seeing patients in the clinic. What do you think about that? Absolutely. I think that, first of all, there's a lot of intimacy in the visit because, again, you're very much focused on it. And besides, you know where people live now and you can see their environment. There were a couple of cases where seeing people walk in their hallway, my recommendation was to order physical therapy and um, basically to help them out, redesign the house. Like one of the rugs can be very nice, but it's actually a fall risk. So it needs to be removed. Things that you could not have done uh, had they come to the clinic. Also, the way we practice in New York is that a lot of patients move to Florida for the winter or they travel overseas. And by telemedicine, you can see people essentially wherever they are. So uh, for continuity of care, telemedicine has significant advantages. It also has a significant advantage to people who are very, very sick. So people who are very, very sick and it's hard for them to commute to Colombia often stop seeing us in the last few years of their lives because just the travel to the hospital is a burden that the family can sometimes not do. And now that we can offer telemedicine, it means that we can take care of people who are sicker and who are homebound in a way that we couldn't do before. So the intimacy is quite good. Seeing the environment where people live in is extremely helpful. And being able to provide care to people that otherwise traveling to a tertiary center, like a movement disorder center, would be a challenge, that's an extreme advantage of telemedicine. As you said before, we have to adapt to this new norm. Do you think that after the crisis somehow starts to improve at some point, we're going to go back to where we were before, or we are going to integrate more telemedicine in our normal practice? I think so. I think that the personal exam is superior. There's also advantage when someone comes to our center, they can be seen by the research uh, group, they can be seen by physical therapy at the same visit, the nurse checks the blood pressure. But telemedicine can be a great supplementary for people who live far away from centers, for people who are too impaired to commute regularly to medical centers, and uh, also uh, for people who have an acute issue that they want an answer more quickly, telemedicine can be a solution. So I think that telemedicine is going to be integrated into our care much more than it has been before. Still, there are very clear limitations. The quality of the line is not always great. The neurological exam is significantly better in person, but it's another tool and it's a tool that we did not use as much before that we should use now uh, more frequently. I am glad you introduced this concept of 
integrating a new tool which, as you were saying, is not perfect but could be useful to complement what we already have. In this setting, do you think that other novel technologies like, for example, sensor or technology-based monitoring, do you think they can help telemedicine to give a more global assessment that now cannot be done, as you were saying before? Right, so I think it's a very steep learning curve for all of us, both we, the clinicians, and the patients. Uh, we started in March by just trying out the telemedicine softwares. Now, people that have used it are asking to use it again. And I think that, of course, the technologies will have to improve to address those issues. For example, the quality of the video is not always good to capture tremor. So devices may help, better quality videos may help, and I think that um, uh, these are going to be extremely needed. And we know that even if our exam is very, very good, it's good for the 10, 15, 20 minutes that we see the patients, and it doesn't capture the entire day. So those devices are extremely needed for the time that the patients have symptoms and we don't see them. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Let me ask you one last question. Do you have any suggestion or any recommendation that you think we should give to our Parkinson's patient or patients with other movement disorders? So I think it clearly is very different from where people are located. And uh, the lockdown is very different in different places. In places that are hit hard like New York, it's also very difficult to maintain physical activity. So people need to develop healthy routines. And healthy routines would be to find a physical exercise routine that would be safe. Try to find out resources for televisits, not just with the doctors, with physical therapists. I know that a lot of the exercise groups that my patients belong provide telemedicine or telehealth services. So people now from all over the world can join them. So I would advise people to modify their routine to make it as healthy as possible, integrating exercise and physical activity as much as allowed not addressing this as if, as if this is something acute and bad that will go away in a month or two because we don't know when it will go away. It's always better to see someone by telemedicine and avoid the risk of travel and exposure. And when time comes and the risk of travel and exposure are no longer there, then complement the telemedicine visits with an in-person visit to get the full exam that uh, we were all used to doing. So. We need to treat it as something that is here to stay a, li a little bit for a while and uh, develop the healthiest routines we can to live the best we can with it. Well, thank you very much for telling us how this new norm is probably going to look like in the future. Is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners? Yeah, so I just wanted to tell you that uh, the experience we've had with COVID, one of the major questions that our patients are asking and we still don't have a good answer for is what's the risk for COVID for people with Parkinson's? Are they at an increased risk, reduced risk? Do you see a different outcome than other people? And I think these are very important questions and it will take much longer for us to gather data. So we're starting to collect this data more formally, but um, from the anecdotal data that we collected, we have over 50 people with Parkinson's and uh, other movement disorders, Huntington's, uh, tics, REM sleep behavior disorder, who developed COVID-19, not because of the disease, but just because they live in New York and were exposed. And what we see so far is that what was true for people without Parkinson's and movement disorders is true here as well. 
We have a lot of people who had mild symptoms and recovered. We had a few people that had significant symptoms and recovered. And we have people who uh, were very sick, either at home or in the nursing home, and uh, either decided when COVID hit to uh, receive comfort measures rather than intubation, or people that were intubated and didn't make it in spite of maximal medical care. And the same risk factors that are seen in the general population we see here, and that's advanced age and comorbidities with respiratory problems. We don't see any specific pattern with Parkinson's or other movement disorders yet, but we're at the stage of collecting data. Excellent. It's going to be great to see your data once you have analyzed it. I'm sure we're going to learn a lot from it. Thank you very much for all this information and suggestions, and thank you for sharing your experience with us. It has been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thank you for having me.